This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is novelist and former police officer and former U.S. Deputy Marshal, Mark Cameron. Always love talking to him. He's a fascinating guy. His latest novel here is Cold Snap, an Arliss Cutter novel. He also authors the Jericho Quinn series and is working on the sixth Tom Clancy novel. Amazing. So now, without further ado, Mark Cameron. Man, I want to talk to you about the beginning. I want to like... Because I really, so we've linked up before at uh, BoucherCon in Dallas. We had a great time at Half Price Books doing the, uh, what yeah. does David Brown call it? He called it the the, the Avengers of Thriller <laughs> Writers right. or something. I forgot that. Yeah, that's right. That was <laughs> so great. that was super fun. Um, and we got to hang out down there for for a few days. And um, but where did all this this start for you? I, I, where did you grow up? I grew up in Texas. Grew up okay. near Fort Worth. Part of my life was down in Central Texas, kind of. If you ever read Old Yeller and Savage Sam down in mm-hmm. down in the hill country down there, I spent my kind of formative years down there, and then high school up near Fort Worth. Okay, okay. And did you always know you were going into law enforcement circles, or where did that? Uh, where did, yeah. How did that start? Yeah, I, I told my wife. I met my wife in the theater department at college, and I told her I was okay. going to be a I was going to be a drama teacher and a novelist. I always want to be a novelist. <laughs> yeah, and a couple of I don't know, maybe a couple of months before we got married, I confessed that I really wanted to be a cop and a novelist and she married nice. me anyway. And so we just sort of worked our way up. You know, she's been a good uh, partner in crime or law enforcement or writing or whatever. And we've worked our way through this uh, together. Uh, man, that's yeah, that's, that's, that's a tough, that's a tough road. I mean, very similar to the military, obviously you're out, oh, you're yeah. gone. There's oh, yeah. so many unknowns and, and all that. But, um, so did you go into local law enforcement first? Did you go right into the, the marshals? Yeah. I went, went into local law enforcement first. My, we found out we were going to have a baby while we were in college. And so I went home and, uh, applied with the local police department where I grew up and got on there. Yeah. Kind of an interesting thing. My son, my youngest son is a police officer here in Anchorage. And wow. when he got off, training um you know you go through the academy training and then like half a year like eight months of field training and during that time i knew he was going through a lot of mental anguish because they just put the screws to you during fto but i wasn't worried about him physically because i always knew there was some senior officer there and the first night he was by himself i was just a nervous wreck i mean and i had 30 years you know 29 years of law enforcement my own but i was just a nervous wreck. And my wife was fine. Really? I thought, I thought, what the heck? He's out here on mids <laughs> by himself. What's going on with you? And I asked her about it. And, and she said, very, very seriously, very calmly. She said, Mark, this is new to you. I've been dealing with this for 30 years. And so it was kind of a slap in the face and a reality check of what she had to go through, as you mentioned with military spouses. And it's, a, it's something that we often don't we kind of take for granted because we're, we're calling them and tell them, Hey, I was in this chase today or this guy got <laughs> shot in the eye or whatever. And then you come home and you realize they've been terrified the whole time you were gone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, 
that's the toughest part. I mean, it's easy for us to go down range and and uh, we have our, our best friends to our right and left. We have a mission. Mm-hmm. We're not worried about the leaky roof or taking the garbage out <laughs> yeah, or changing exactly. a diaper or anything like that. We're solely focused on the task at hand. And then, uh, and interestingly enough, as you know, obviously as information travels faster and faster, same thing in, in law enforcement circles is, you know, their TV's on and they're there making dinner or whatever else. And then Lance over and that screen and it's an officer involved shooting uh, yep. on local news. Yep. And it's like, you know, same thing, military, they'd be okay. Their oh, IED. Yeah. And it would say, let's say, you know, six UF service members wounded. And then it would go and change to, uh, you know, two maybe deceased and they're still wounded. And then it's changed to special operations. Yeah. And then it would change to SEALs or Army Special Forces or whatever it might have been. But it kind of would whittle down and they're getting that news wondering, okay, my husband's in Iraq. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wait a sec. He's in Baghdad. Okay. It mm-hmm. says Baghdad. Okay, it's a special operations. Uh, and so it just whittles down from there. Yeah. So they have all that anguish and and thought and they figure out, I guess, coping mechanisms to deal with fill it. Fill in the blanks. Yeah. They yeah. they fill in the blanks. Wait, my uh in fact I use this in one of the books is I, I know you do. You take little bits and pieces that you've been inspired by. I, I don't ever base anything specifically on a person, mm-hmm. but I, it certainly inspires. And I can tell from reading your books, you you're definitely inspired by specific events that have happened. Oh, yeah. and I remember my, uh, I was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi on a Dixie mafia trial. Uh, if you ever saw walking tall, Buford Pusser, all yeah. that stuff. Well, yeah. this was post Buford Pusser, but the guy that killed Buford Pusser's wife, uh, Kirksey McCord Nix was in Angola state pen. And we had him running. It was a big organized crime thing down in, Hattiesburg and one of the witnesses, not protected witnesses, but one of our witnesses had been a government witness had been killed. And so they brought in a bunch of us to, you know, do, do, you know, we were moving him by helicopter and, you know, back and forth and spending weeks in jail with the guys that were witnesses and fun. Awesome. Awesome <laughs> stuff. Running code back and forth to, with, uh, and protecting the jury. And while I'm telling my wife stories about all this, you know, on the phone at night, um, my partner showed up, well, like you said, with the news going on. My partner showed up to get my government car because I was the low man on the totem pole. So I had the cage in my old uh-huh. Caprice, you know. And so my Caprice is parked in the driveway, our little duplex, and she's new to the marshal service. But she's been with the law enforcement for probably 10 years at that time. Mm-hmm. And my partner, this is in Texas, and he showed up with another uh, deputy marshal to uh, get my car. And they had hats and, you know, we'd kind of dress like Texas Rangers in that part of the country. And being the gentleman he was, he took his hat off and he was holding it over his heart. So these two guys with hats off over their chest are just coming to tell my wife that they're getting my car. But what do you oh, think geez. she thinks? So, yeah. so she, you know, my partner called me before she even did like, hi, oh, your wife collapsed at the door. I'm really sorry. Oh, I didn't know. So like I said, we really don't think about that. And I'm sure military spouses go through that in spades, just being the, just filling in the blanks, the terrible thriller story in their brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of unknowns out there, a lot of uncertainty out there. Um, then with the information flow, it's, uh, yeah, they come up with coping mechanisms, um, you know, both in military and, and law enforcement circles. Um, man, but uh, so how did, how did, what was the, uh, the, how much time did you spend in local law enforcement before you decided to uh, apply for the marshals? 
about seven years. It's been about, I, well, I applied five years in. That was back in the day when there wasn't the internet. And I started in 84 when I was barely old enough to buy my own bullets. Wow. Um, and back when we would, you know, pull our cars up, you know, door to door and pass the, you know, here, here's the pamphlet I got in the mail from the ATF or here's what the FBI is doing. Or we worked with the marshals a lot because they would call, they really worked a lot with local law enforcement. And so, um, in fact, I had met my first deputy marshal when I was probably 15, when he got out of the car on the courthouse square and put one of those little bags over the parking meter that said official business U.S. Marshal. And I thought, <laughs> I want one of those. I want one of those. Nice. But uh, so I applied like two and a half years before and just went through the process. But it's, they just don't have very many openings. It's a very small service. And so mm-hmm. it took a long time to uh, kind of matriculate, you know, up through the system and finally got, uh, finally got hired. Right. So what, um, why, what was the draw towards the marshals rather than say like FBI or, or another federal law enforcement agency? Well, I, I really wanted the boots on the ground kind of thing. I, out of yeah. all the, the work that I did, I enjoyed patrol the most. And, and I was a mounted police officer when I was finally hired. I had gone through patrol, spent several years as a, as a detective, worked, you know, in a small department like that, it was general case. So we'd work homicide, sexual assault, and bicycle theft. It was, it was wow. everything, whatever happened. And fortunately for my, my city, we didn't have a ton of homicides, but I worked several and, um, you know, kind of cut my teeth on, on that sort of thing as a very young officer. So mm. because I was so young and, and inexperienced, the Texas Rangers would come in. That's what they do. And a lot of people don't understand that one of the main missions of the Texas Rangers is to come in and assist local law enforcement with expertise. Mm-hmm. So I worked very closely with them, but also during that time, I worked with the marshal service and I was very impressed that the marshals were not the time. And I'm not going to speak badly of another agency, but, but some agencies will call you and say, we need your help. Don't move until we get there. The marshals were like, get the guy we're on our mm-hmm. way. And the, it was more important to get the bad guy. And yeah. that really impressed me. And I worked with them a lot. And I, it was more of a, an outcome-based thing than a, who got the, the glory. And so um, we all wanted to be. I shouldn't say that because a couple of my friends went bureau. And a couple <laughs> went, went board patrol. But um, yeah. several of my friends went to, to the marshal service. Okay. And what were you, when you were uh, doing local law enforcement, what were you what were you carrying? And were you patrolling by yourself back then? Or do you have a partner? Do you have a, like an 870 in the car with you? What yeah. was your, what was no, your sidearm? Yeah, yeah. And what we did you played, have in the car? So this was back in the revolver days. In fact, I was nice. at Cabela's with my son, the, gosh, probably a month ago. And, uh, we were looking at the new six, I carried a 686, a Smith and Wesson 686. Awesome. Um, kind of the poor man's version of a Colt Python. Hey, back that's then. a great, now they're that's not, a great now revolver. They're, oh, it's an awesome gun. And that, that was back. I, I would never recommend this to anyone, but that was back there in the day when every once in a while you used your barrel or your pistol like a baton <laughs> in <laughs> close quarters. Um, nice. Never do that now, but yeah, uh, yeah. and and rarely did it back then. But um, just a big old heavy steel pipe. But I love that, love that yeah. pistol. But so I carried that through my most of my career. I went for one short time carrying a. Um, nickel plated two and a half inch 19 when I was a detective, because I thought detectives were supposed to 
wear shoulder holsters and whatnot. But, uh, <laughs> hey, the power of popular culture. Yeah, right and there. exactly. That, that was Miami Vice time and yeah. all that. So we all wanted Bren 10s, and, but, but yeah. <laughs> we couldn't carry uh, semi-autos. That was, mm-hmm. Fort Worth was doing experiments with them. The uh, Smith & Wesson had that, I can't remember the model. Uh, it, was a, it was a semi-automatic nine, really blocky looking mm-hmm. nine. I can't remember what it was called. Mm-hmm. Uh, 59 or something like that. Yeah. Um, they were carrying those, but most everybody NYPD was still carrying model tens, I think, um, which is like a 357 with, with no sight, you know, just Mm. fixed sights. Um, but I actually did the study to have our department carry semi-autos and, uh, then couldn't afford one. So I still carry when we finally, the last year I was there, we got some miles. But when I started, so while I was with patrol, I carried a, a 686 and a 870, but we didn't have patrol rifles unless you were on SWAT. And then I was on okay. SWAT the last 18 months, I guess. And then we got MP5s. Oh, um, wow. And then, uh, yeah, well, quite a transition from, yeah. from 686 to, sure. to that. Um, but then, uh, and we had, we had old, we started with ARs, the A, what are they called? A, the ones with the triangular four end and. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm aging myself here. No, um, no. Yeah. No, I, that's fantastic. And, and stuff from VR. Um, I can't remember what you call it, but the, the stuff from military surplus, where you go in and get yeah. a pile of, of BDUs, you know, and yeah. through them. That was our SWAT gear. But then when I went with the marshals, they outfitted us um, with Ruger GP100s. We were, I still I went with this federal service, and we we were still carrying revolvers. This would have been in 1991. Okay. The following year, they changed to Smith and Wesson uh, 40 calibers, um, and then um, shortly after that. Well, no, it was a while. We we could carry whatever we wanted within certain parameters, which okay. was great. So I I love the GP100. It was another boat anchor kind of a big uh, honking piece of steel. Yeah. Um, but I went to a semi-auto for a while, carried an H and K because I worshipped you guys, um, <laughs> and you know, carried that SOCOM pistol for a while, and then my revolver jeans got back to me, and I started carrying a, a six twenty four which is a round butt 44 special because okay. we couldn't carry magnums. So huh. uh, carried a little 44 kind of all tricked out with perlite grips and a Marshall's badge in the, nice. in the, in the handle. And yeah, those oh, I, like the days. Those I like it. I like it. Yeah. You know, nothing wrong with a 686. We, we still had them in the inventory when I got to the SEAL teams and I got there to my first SEAL team in 97. Yeah. And uh, we still had six because coming over the beach, you know, there's uh, we didn't have shoot through bags yet. We got them fairly soon there afterward. But, uh, you know, anything that has a lot of moving parts and you get tossed in the sand and that, when that oh, wave yeah. rolls you at night and you're just everything's covered in sand and, you know. 686 would still be okay. We had, there were pictures, I think there's probably online of, uh, of guys doing, uh, CQB back then CQC today, um, with the 686, you know, they're running, they're all decked out and black and they look like ninjas. And then there's this, uh, silver, uh, (laughs) 686, but I love that thing. And I still love shooting revolvers. Uh, I shot a revolver at a course in, uh, Thunder Ranch with Clint Smith. And I used the, uh, the Thunder Ranch. It's a 45 ACP revolver, uh, with a rail on it. And, uh, I shot that thing. Everybody else had, um, had, uh, you know, uh, auto loading pistols. And I love doing that. My, my, my groups were so tight 
for whatever reason with that revolver, I was, I don't know. I, I loved it. Well, I, lo you, and I love yeah. shooting. Yeah. Once you get the, the mechanism down, so you know kind of where that little sweet spot is to mm. realign your front sight. And it, it happens very quickly when you're shooting a revolver, especially a Smith to me. I mean, the Colts are super smooth. That Smith has that little spot, right? As you're pulling the trigger mm. where you can kind of refocus. And is that, I was going to ask you, is that 45? Is that used like full moon clips or is that, yeah. you don't have to use? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got moon clips moon. going on there. Okay. Um, but I think, but it's, uh, it, it's so fun to, to run yeah. something like that oh, and to yeah. run it quickly and under stress and Clint Smith yelling at you. And it's just, <laughs> it's awesome. I love it. I, I want to get yeah. back up. I'm looking, I'm actually looking for, they have a Thunder Ranch edition, Smith and Wesson, um, uh, uh, revolver 45 ACP. And I almost got one the other day, but then my, my gun broker account didn't recognize the password. And I was like, dang it. Ah, there's <laughs> oh, so much going on. And it, gun broker is dangerous, <sighs> man. It, yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, they're very dangerous. My son <laughs> and son-in-law and I have figured that out. It's too much. Oh, yeah. Too easy to click a button. It's so fantastic. Yeah, but I'm great, still looking for one, a new inbox, uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Thunder Ranch edition, because I just love that thing. Uh, and then I love the 870. I mean, I, I, I oh, me went too. through some courses with the 870 before I went into the SEAL teams, and primarily we used a shotgun just for breaching. But mm -hmm. uh, I love running that old that old 870. It is awesome. I yeah, mean, we, had a, we had a Marshall Service gun. In fact, they call it, even outside the Marshall Service, they call it a Witsec shotgun. Uh, mm. it's, it's much like the TAC P the, the, um, or the TAC 14. I mean, the, mm. um, it's got the birds, the ATF classified it as a firearm, not a shotgun or a pistol. Oh. So it's got okay. a 14 inch barrel bird's head grip. Mm. The Marshall service has an 11 inch barrel with a little, okay. little flange on the front. So you don't blow your hand off. Cause it's yeah, okay. right in yeah. front of the right in front of the little knurled knob, you know, it's just cut off right there. Okay. But I carried one of those for years in Alaska as a tracker because it fits right here. And you can, okay. you know, once you see a bear off in the woods or climbing up the side of a hill while you're tracking somebody, whether it's a lost hunter or a bad guy, it's certainly nice to have some sort of Brennicky slug in the tube more than your, and I, when you're 357 even. Oh yeah. No, no doubt about you that. You know, you hunt Alaska, so you, you know yeah. exactly what I'm talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah. I know. I love it up there. I try to yeah, get up there too. at least once a, at least once a year. Yeah, I just love, love Alaska. I went up there, spent three months before I went in the Navy, uh, backpacking around mountaineering. Ah, oh, love yeah. it up there. Uh, so what was it, that training like switching over from the law enforcement? Did you go to, you got, does everyone go to like the, uh, what is it? The federal law enforcement training, uh, center. center or how yeah. To, yeah. Fletzy. Yeah. Or as we affectionately call it, Flea Tech. It's okay. uh, Fletzy. The federal law enforcement training centers is, it's kind of like I imagined that the buildings, I hate to wax all philosophical and old, but the, the buildings that I stayed in still had exposed, um, well, they looked a lot like your building Military. in Coronado, that, yeah. that very okay. sparse, you know, exposed yeah. steam. And of course they don't, you don't need steam heat in San Diego, I guess, but <laughs> you know what I'm talking about that military yeah. gray. Oh, yeah. And, um, so I always, when I write a KGB scene, I'm always imagining the, yeah, <laughs> the barracks. And it was not like the military at all though, in that we only got yelled at during the day in the evenings. We were on our own. We didn't have there you go. Much more civilized. Stuff. And, and I thought it was going to be that way, but we got there and, and, uh, you check in and all that. You can't obviously carry a gun. Then they, even when you're on the job later and go back for in-service, you check it in mm. when you get there and count your 
ammo and, you know, checking the gun. Cause otherwise there'd be like thousands of armed <laughs> people going into Pam's bar, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. there on base. Um, but, uh, it was, we got there and they took us over. It's kind of like a little motel six like thing, two people in a room and then a shared bathroom in between those two people. And, um, and another two people. And then they told us, here's your closet and and don't worry about it. The maid's going to come in in the morning while you're in class. And I was like, well, this hey. isn't what I thought it was going to be like. That's awesome. So Interesting. So it, yeah, it's, it's a little uh, different than the military. Yeah, very different than the military. <laughs> but, uh, but still, and it goes through phases. There's, you know, now I think there's a lot more in your face during the day stuff. When I did it, it was a lot of classes and then a lot mm-hmm. of, of uh, the in-your-face stuff was during defensive tactics and mm. and PT, and then the mandatory, voluntary mandatory runs and fitness stuff at night. Yeah, and did you guys drive there and everything? Did yeah, you, oh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an awesome. If you want to write thriller novels, it's it's a it's, good place to go. Uh, not probably not as awesome training as SEALs, but it, it was a fantastic. You know, writing about bootlegger turns or J turns. I yeah. know how to do that. Now I know right. what it's like to ram a car. I know what it's oh, like yeah. to get shot at with sim rounds. I, you know, so it's a, uh, and, and a lot of surveillance stuff, of course, then we do that after the fact, but there's yeah. times when you'll check out vehicles and radios and they assign you as a team. And then there's role players and people around Brunswick, mm-hmm. Georgia are kind of used to, or all of Glenn County actually in Northern Florida and Southern Georgia there. Um, they're just used to a bunch of plain clothes, <laughs> yeah, wet behind the ears, baby federal agents from all every agency, with the exception of the DEA and the FBI, go to Fletsy. Yeah, and so how, what was the attrition like there? Not bad. No, not bad. Yeah. We had we had a couple of people. We had a fairly severe attrition in the beginning because of the first Gulf War, and so uh-huh. we had obviously several former military, a lot of people that were in the, in the reserves who never thought they would get called up. And I remember being in the chow line and these guys came over and talked to two of our uh, Marine Corps reserves. And I turned around and talked to somebody else. When I turned back around, there was two trays just in the, they were like disappeared, but nobody really knew what was going on. We lost a couple to, uh, to just, not hacking it kind of thing, yeah. but, uh, not bad at all. Not like no bell ringing or anything like that. <laughs> By the time they, no hell because week. the physicality of it. No, no. And I, and I would say I got to go because of one of the Clancy's I got to go. I've been meaning to tell you this forever. I got to go on a thing called JCOC, the joint civilian orientation conference. I had, mm. I'd written a, a scene or a couple of scenes about the coast guard and one of the coast guard admirals saw it and recommended me for this thing that the sec def, sponsors and puts about 40, I think, um, basically people that either can say things about the military, Mm. have a voice like novelists and whatnot, um, or people that can hire military members after they get out. And so Mm. I had in my cohort, there was like the president of Lionsgate films and, you know, different, different job, you know, different people that own big companies. And one of the things that we did was we got to go to Miramar and fly in, you know, different aircraft. And, nice. Um, and uh, then we got to go to Coronado and it was all, you know, it was a bunch of people my age. Right. And so 
we got to roll around. I was so impressed because we did the Marine Corps thing too, where they were yelling at us and screaming at us, standing on the Jeez. yellow, you know, the oh, yeah, yeah. footprints and all sure. that. And it was terrifying. A bunch of old people getting our wallets <laughs> yeah. thrown around. That sounds awful. That. And, oh, it was terrible. They, they did it all the way up to when we call home. So all the way up to when you walk up to the phone mm. and call home. And then oh, the SEAL thing, I was so impressed with the quiet certitude of the guys with the megaphones. I, I don't know, you call them instructors or what do you? Yep. Okay, so the instructor's like, get in the water, get out of the water. I better yeah. see you with sand on you. And so we got that we volunteered and for 40 minutes, whoever wanted to do it, 40 minutes nearly killed me, Jack. Of course, I'm, <laughs> at that time I was 58 years old. But I remember General Adignan, he's the Inspector General of the Marine Corps, was one of our you know, docents, if you will, if you mm -hmm. can have, you can count a two star in the Marine Corps as a sure. docent. And he, uh, I was a sugar cookie in the sand. If you look on my, if you look on my uh, social media very close, you can see the tears running through. The, oh, stop down it. My, oh, it was just, <laughs> it was, I was about to puke my guts out. Uh, <laughs> you know, a pair, my fighting weight's about 220, you know. All right. And uh, he came up and he, and so I'm, I'm like, about to die in the sand. And again, for only 40 minutes, right? And he came up and he goes, Mark, you are fat and you are old. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and I said, I can't not do it, General. And he goes, outstanding. And walked away. And I thought, okay, all right, I, I can do it. But my hat is off to you guys. Even uh, young guys, they all, because they were doing it like they got out of our way because yeah. I think they were kind of happy to have yeah, us yeah, there exactly. for 40 minutes, uh -huh. but they all just looked like, Oh my gosh. It was, it was yeah. incredible. It was incredible, oh, which was actually the best part of the whole thing was seeing the men and women in the service going through. I, I worked with a, a guy in the, he was with the bureau, um, his name is Tom Norris. I don't know if you've heard that mm -hmm. name before. Medal of Honor winner. Oh, yeah. His picture's up oh, in yeah. the in Coronado there. Um, Medal of Honor winner. Uh, the guy that got Bat yeah. 21 out. Um, anyway, he was a bureau agent when I was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So it's kind of cool to go through there and see his picture uh -huh. and, and chat with some of the... We got to have chow with some of the SEAL instructors. Yeah. Fantastic. Oh, that's awesome that you did that. That's very cool. I'm going to go scroll down in your social media. I don't think I've seen a picture from that. I love your social oh, yeah. media. And I love the, the older uh, pictures that you put on there from like the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Like those are, those are fantastic. Yeah. Well, it's hard to miss the guy crying in the sand. Oh, it's not. <laughs> uh, I'll find it. Uh, and so when you graduated the academy there, now you're a full-fledged U.S. Marshal. And deputy where's US your Marshall, first yeah. uh, deputy U.S. Marshal? And then where do you go for your first uh, first assignment? Or is it a field office, or how mm -hmm. how do you how are you guys stationed there? Yeah, I was very fortunate because I had prior law enforcement. A lot of folks come in, you know, right out of college, and uh, I had prior law enforcement, so I went to a two person sub office. Um, so there's the main offices where the presidentially appointed U.S. Marshals mm -hmm. are. Okay. We have kind of a little, you know, I'm I'm friends with my old U.S. Marshals, but we have a little saying among the service that the gold badge is given and the silver badge is earned. Um, oh. The gold badges are the, the ones that are, so, and some of them come up through the ranks, very okay. few, uh, but that's a political appointment that changes with every administration Interesting. Uh, generally. Um, but I went to a sub office. The main office was in Tyler, Texas, okay. a couple hundred miles away. And I was North of Dallas and handled from just 
west or just yeah, just west of Texarkana, all the way across the top of Texas. It was along to the Red River and all oh, of yeah. that area. I know so Red River down County. Down to well. Dallas, but not Dallas. Dallas is North Texas. So they're all set up by judicial districts. So spent about four years in North Texas when back again, dating myself, but really pre-computer. I mean, yeah. there are computers, but we still kept three by five or five by seven cards on each prisoner and, you know, went out and just arrested bad guys. It was a phenomenal, phenomenal time in the marshal service. Yeah. So, and so primarily your responsibility then is to go out and apprehend uh, violent criminals or criminals. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the main, the main mission, isn't it? Or how? What, yeah. Yeah. So, so as, as things heated up on the border and the jails, and then with some of the crime, uh, some of the law enforcement, um, really a lot of the drug crimes, things were, the prison population went up mm. because of crack cocaine and some mm. things that were going on like that. And so we had a very, for, for a time there, we were out of the field just handling court. And it was a horrible time in the marshal service where you're, where you're just, hooking and hauling, you know, but in the beginning, like for the first three years of my career, two years of my career, it was just protecting judges and okay. which is our main task. Okay. If you, if you uh, look at what we prioritize is protecting the federal judiciary. So anytime there's a threat, we we're pretty much 24 seven on the, on the Supremes when they're outside the beltway. Um, sometimes by presidential order, as you're seeing now a little bit um, yeah. inside the beltway. Mm-hmm. Um, but when they leave, we're on them as the secret services on the, on the president when they're, but just when they travel, not yeah. necessarily, you know, and the, and the detail um, fluctuates. There might be, you know, I won't get into specifics of yeah, it, yeah. but it's not, it's not like, you know, 17 yeah. vehicles and all that, right. but we do stay on them. Um, and then anytime there's a threat on a federal judge that's deemed credible, then for instance, after, uh, and I've seen you write about this too, you and I both have some specific uh, interaction with Ramsey Youssef and, mm-hmm. and I was on that first Ramsey Youssef trial. Wow. Um, mostly now I handled the hooking and hauling portion of him because I wanted to, I, I knew this was part of history and I wanted to be, okay. so I volunteered to, to assist uh, with the, that part of it. My main job was to protect Judge Mukasey uh, wow. and or Judge Mukasey's wife uh, at the time, who beca- later became the Attorney General. But he was one of the two judges that heard those cases to do wow. with the, the first World Trade Center bombing. So, and, okay. and as a matter of fact, during part of that detail, we rotated through there a lot. We protected Judge Mukasey for several years because of the threats coming from wow. overseas. And uh, as part of that trial, we a lot of times we would go up and eat at the windows of the world at the top of the world trade center. Um, you know, just to kind of be, it was part of, part of history, you know? Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Well, speaking of that, where were you then on, on nine 11? Um, let's see on nine 11, I was in Alaska getting ready to go to work here. Yeah, okay. we were, you know, we're four hours different. And so kids were getting ready to school, go to school. And, um, you know, of course, everybody's stunned, you know, everybody can remember right where they were. And mm-hmm. we had, you know, stuff was going on all over the country, obviously, but Alaska was so 
it, it got so weird because you know when you're when you're in Alaska, if you look up, there's a plane above you. Always, there's just some kind of unless you're like yeah. way off the beaten path hunting or whatever. But generally speaking, around any area where there's people, it's like suburbans. Yeah. Anywhere else, there's a bush plane flying yeah. above you. I think, aren't there more planes so, per capita in Alaska than yeah, anywhere else yeah, in the world or something? Like, yeah, it, yeah, it's crazy. But the the um, the skies went quiet for oh, for wow. a while. It was only military. And our marshal service plane were the only planes in the air because we had to, we got special permission on our call signs, like justice two, four, seven. So they, so they nice. let, us, let us fly by special that's, permission, but that's but awesome. it was a, we had a, we had a Korean air flight come inbound that had panicked when not that I went on and actually bumped the, the secret code that said they're hijacked. Oh, geez. And so they were inbound and there was a lot of scrambling around that morning while the real Whoa. stuff was going on at the Pentagon and the, the terrible terror. We were scrambling around trying to uh, figure out. And, you know, and, and those of us that have been on a while, we're looking at each other like, yeah, why would anybody want to crash into the federal building in Alaska? This is not a prime yeah. target. You yeah. Know? But it's still, there was a lot of, uh, what terrified me more was the mayhem that that caused. Not worried about a plane flying right. into the, federal building but it but we, we were certainly able to use it later on to point out to people this is why we need to plan this is why we need to drill yeah um so yeah where were you i was deployed my second uh two uh, two weeks into my second deployment in guam and it was like about midnight in guam and so people start banging on doors up and down the hallway and we don't have tvs in our in our room but phones start we have phones and phones start ringing uh and then we went down to the basement and there was one TV down there and we watched the twin towers fall on TV and, and you and we knew your we life going, was going to change. didn't you? Yep. Oh yeah. And we thought we were going to Afghanistan essentially the next day. But, uh, as you said, there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, not chaos, but there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, yeah. and it took a little while to figure out what was going to transpire, what we we're going to do. Uh, and then we thought we were going to Afghanistan and instead we went to Kuwait and did the, uh, shipboarding operations, for SEAL mm -hmm. Team 3, they ended up going to Afghanistan, and we did the shipboarding operations to uh, enforce the UN embargo against Iraq oh, right. for, uh, for oil. So it was the, the only time in my my time in uniform when I, I did shipboarding. Did, did anything near the ocean, for real. Isn't that a, <laughs> isn't that a heck of a deal? Shipboarding is, we, we don't do any tactical shipboarding, but just climbing up aboard a ship we're going to seize is, you can get, yeah. especially in Alaska waters, but water oh, is water. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't want to go in those Alaska waters. I mean, those guys, like you were talking about the Coast Guard earlier, and uh, we have a cold weather warfare training facility on mm -hmm. Kodiak, and yeah. I love going to Kodiak. It's just, I love Alaska in general, but really the coast, uh, the West Coast, all the way from, say, let's say Santa Barbara, all the way up. It's just, it, it's just rough and it's unforgiving oh, yeah. and I just love it. But Kodiak in particular, um, cause you're hitting so many different, uh, types of environments from the, from the water over the beach. And then you're moving up onto even, a, uh, into the snow and I'd hit a peak and then back down the other side, swim back out to a boat. Like it, I just love it. Uh, love it out there. Oh, yeah. But the coast guard, I mean, those guys oh, in Kodiak flying those helicopters and going after those, uh, fishing boats out there that are in trouble. And it's incredible what those guys do. I mean, oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And, and that's, I think that's primarily why I was, why I included the Coast Guard in that first Jack Ryan novel, just because yes. I see it. I see it yeah. all the time. And they help us up until, actually up until 9-11, uh, Coast Guard law enforcement and many of the, the Coast Guardsmen were sworn in as special deputy marshals because oh, wow. they needed 
law enforcement authority, and that's where they got it because they were interesting. They were part of, in when it wasn't wartime, they were part of Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. and then during wartime, they could be brought into to the defense. But uh, so we we swore in loads of of Coast oh, wow. Guardsmen in wow. the beginning. That's amazing. Yeah, those guys. Whew. What a job up there. Seeing uh, it every day. Oh, they sure are. They sure are. Uh, so how did you get to Alaska then? What was the path from uh, from being assigned to uh, to North Texas as a U.S. Marshal to uh, to Alaska? Yeah, so I wanted to get to Alaska since I was a little kid. And okay. Read stories about Alaska. And I, yeah. you know, I, I see you um, mentioned to build a fire oh, quite yeah. a bit. That was a, that was a, a seminal. Yeah story in my life that that survival and mm-hmm. so i read a lot of jack london i read a lot of a writer named farley mowett who is oh, a yeah. canadian writer oh uh, yeah i read a, read a book called two against the north oh. another one called the people of the deer two against oh, yeah. the north probably changed where i was going with my life about two boys <sighs> surviving in northern canada mm-hmm. um, on the barren it was originally called lost in, lost the, in the barrens yeah i have yeah. a lost in the barrens right downstairs it's in my it's, in my little guy's room i have all the farley moets that i read growing up in his room down there yeah the, um, yeah it's ah love those so books you know growing. you know he was a uh, he was a uh, Quite the quite the radical. I think he was actually yeah. banned from the U.S. for a while for I think you're right. to shoot down a, a, a military jet. <laughs> was but, that uh, what it was? Know, <laughs> yeah, he, he was mad about acid rain and uh-huh. upset, so he threatened to shoot down a jet so they wouldn't let uh-huh. him in. But he, you know, kind of <laughs> big, bigger, rattier beard than mine, wore a kilt yeah. around all the time. But man, the guy knew the North, and he'd lived mm-hmm. in the North. He'd lived with the people. Um, I think I was 12 when I read Lost in the Barrens. Um, I still I have the original the book. Age. My my grandma gave me. It's in a in a Ziploc baggie, torn to pieces. Oh, that's so a I, fantastic. Maybe I yeah, maybe I was 10, 11, 12, sometime around it. But I went in our backyard and got a pair of. Um, if you remember, there's a part in it where they go snow blind, where they're. Trying I to do get remember that. I haven't man. thought of that since yeah, junior so high. They, yeah, so they I go told that's the first time I think I. I <laughs> yeah, I didn't I, know what that I, was yeah. either. In in Texas, you don't know about right. snow blindness. So I went back, found a cottonwood root that I could carve and carve myself some Eskimo goggles. Right, the little slits, right? Yeah, Yeah. So I I totally remember that now. My parents and my friends were thinking, what's wrong with this crazy (laughs) 12-year-old kid walking around with with cottonwood roots on his eyes? Oh, that's so great. And every National Geographic about the Inuit. I did too, yeah. um, Yeah, so I just knew I wanted to move up here. Ended up marrying a Canadian girl from Calgary. and then slowly worked my way up. After Ruby Ridge, they needed two deputies to basically be in North Idaho mm. and, you know, put our kids in school, just show that we weren't the juggernauts that, mm. that we were being made out to be. And so myself and another deputy. So I came from north from uh, north of Dallas and Texas was transferred up to Coeur d'Alene. My partner came from Boise. And we opened the office in Coeur d'Alene and I lived there for about four years. That's where I met Tommy Norris. Wow. Uh, spent many a spent many an evening every April surveilling the Aryan nation oh, <laughs> and geez. copying down license plates with Tom telling me stories. And like oh, no Tommy in, he mentored my oldest son, who at that time wanted to go to the Naval Academy. Okay. Um, you know, just you know, and, and Tommy and I didn't work together a gob. We got some good arrests together, mm. but my son was at that time, he was in the fourth, fifth, and sixth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, uh, fourth through the seventh grade. And so Tommy just really 
you know, being a Medal of Honor winner and, and a SEAL and, and, and he's the only FBI agent I ever knew that had a glass eye because of oh, wow. the, the thing that he was in with oh, the geez. second Medal of Honor where the right. other SEAL got a Medal uh-huh. of Honor, getting him out, earned a Medal of Honor, I shouldn't say got. Um, but uh, so he was just a super nice guy, super soft spoken about it. Yeah. And um, he, uh, so my son, you know, talked to him a lot about the Academy. He, he gave my son the advice, keep a book on yourself, you know, hey. you know, and, and then my son ended up going to the Air Force Academy because hey. there's not a Navy presence in Alaska. So that's who was talking to him all the time. But, there you go. but it was smart. <laughs> definitely because of Tommy Norris. Absolutely. Wow. Amazing. And did you have to volunteer yeah. then to go to uh, uh, Northern Idaho? Or did they, were they looking for volunteers and you no, volunteer actually, or you get voluntold? Well, and volunteered, but I had, I had, my wife actually got breast cancer and her mother had breast cancer at the same time. Oh. And so I approached my, um, our headquarters to, with the permission of my marshal and said, could I get some, I'll pay my way, but could I get a, um, a, you know, a transfer up here to get my, you know, anywhere along the border, just because my mother-in-law is in Calgary. My wife's got going through chemo. We want to time it when she's finished with her chemo. And we were wow. young. I mean, she got breast cancer when she was 30. Oh, wow. um, and so, and it was pretty aggressive. So a lot of surgeries and all that. So, and and you know, people that read my books will see that there's often a nod to a very strong female character who's yeah. dealing with that. but but I try not to make it the main story because that's not their main story and it shouldn't right. be. Right. Um, so, um, went up to North Idaho. So we were closer to Calgary, spent four years there. Everything was going great, but we started getting some, some pretty radical, um, stuff left on our door oh, because wow. we were feds. And okay, uh, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. I just decided that it was probably time to not raise my kids there as a federal there's great people and we loved our neighbors and we loved our friends and and the beautiful area around we live north yeah. of court lane between court lane and sandpoint oh wow and good work i mean there was rural stuff and tracking yeah. and and mostly fugitives because we didn't have a judge there so we didn't have wow. court very often it was just okay. chasing people wow but um it was not the place for, to raise a raise kids as a federal law enforcement officer that was during the time when when there was a lot of radio programs on that were you know shoot feds in the head and mm. um it was a rough rough time to be a, a federal agent um and so when the opening came up to move to alaska i volunteered for that right away okay got it got it and then how was alaska were you already doing the man tracking stuff in in northern idaho and then how was it moving up to alaska it was because it was still fairly, uh, I guess you're still in the wilderness. You're still doing oh, some yeah. of that, more of that than more. Than, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It was so, the first yeah. time, first time I'd ever been in a headquarters office. So the marshal was right down the hall. I'd been in, you know, as much as 350, 400 miles away from the bosses. It was always yeah. just me and another deputy. That's so the way to go. By being the way. Kind of, and I know, I know being a, <laughs> For being those a listening. Garrison, garrison soldier, if you will, is not exactly. my way. Um, exactly. But <laughs> Alaska has this kind of a very frontier. Well, I mean the last frontier, but, but the district itself has a very frontier feel. And so all the deputies were, in fact, I told one of the the computer guys, we were just getting 
you know, email was coming on and fax was, in fact, I remember as I was moving up here, fax machines had switched from that thermal paper uh, to a regular, you know, regular kind of paper. Oh man. Um, the government in general held on to fax machines for a long time. Oh, I know. I know. I asked my, I asked <laughs> they were my reluctant son to give those up. <laughs> I asked my son a long time or not too long ago. I said, Hey, did you get a teletype on that guy? And he goes, no, because this is not 1987. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't live in the teletype, yeah, the teletype world. Yeah. So we, we, um, Alaska is one of those places where you can do because it's a headquarters office, because there was people in Fairbanks, there's only two deputies in Fairbanks and then everybody else was here. Um, we did a little bit of everything, you yeah. know, ship, ship seizures going out in season. I mean, one of my first gigs up here was season 30,000 pounds of frozen Pollock that some, I don't even know why we were seizing it, but it was the, <laughs> that was one of those, you know, you have this court order come down and, you know, the Tommy Lee Jones, I don't care. I don't care yeah, what yeah. season it. There's a seizure there order here and I'm going to go out and do it. It's not as sexy as a guy jumping off a, yeah. Damn, but, right. but I, you go out. So a lot of different things uh, and more than anything, and I, I hope it comes out in the books as your experiences downrange come out. I love the rural aspect of it, but mm -hmm. I love the native culture aspect of it because, you know, from being on Kodiak, you can have Aleutic people, uh, you know, in Western Alaska, you can have Yupik, Northern Alaska, Inupak, both of those are Inuit slash Eskimo type people, you know, ethnicities, um, interior Athabascan, Gwich'in, down south, Clinket, Haida, the totem pole builders. Mm -hmm. So there's no, I mean, one of my very first tracking assignments, and I was an outdoorsman before I came to Alaska, mm -hmm. but I wasn't a certified tracker. We went through actual training classes and certifications to become tracker trackers. And, and mainly it was the being able to write a report and the technical aspects of it and the tactical aspects of it. So running kind of a, you know, I get down on the ground and track, whether it's an elk or a person, but then we were taught by folks from the border patrol or David Scott Donlin school. I was ask um, you about that. Um, you know, how to run point. Now he does it a little different because it's that whole, you know, shoot on either side of the tree and run more like you might be using right. tactical tracking. Area. Yeah. But our tackle tracking is because much of our tracking might be after a lost hunter, but mm -hmm. in a situation where there's moose and bear and there's, there's elemental things out there that you have to watch out for as well. Um, luckily, we don't have to watch out for snakes, which is always yes. worried about in, in, in uh, Texas. But so we run kind of a point slack thing where the tracker's on the ground, uh, usually with that Woodsec shotgun at, in the reach. And then a, um, an overwatch person that's over the top of them mm -hmm. with their rifle. And so they're watching, they're your eyes and your protection. So you can focus 100% oh, yeah. on the ground and then two people mm -hmm. flanking. flanking. So, mm -hmm. so much like, you know, really that's a David Scott Donlin kind yeah. of a, kind of a thing. Um, and then if you've got enough people, then you put somebody as a rear guard. Otherwise the two flankers will, because what you really are using the flankers for when you're tracking is, eyes up, but also eyes down. They're trying to cut sign because when you're trying somebody that's bad, you're really bounding. You're, you're mm. finding the track. You see where they're azimuth, they're headed, getting ahead to the next spot where it's a likely track, finding another one because, and as I explain to new trackers all the time and my, and Ty Cunningham was my uh, instructor and actually my martial arts 
instructor for years, and he was a deputy up here that really got the tracking unit going. Um, he, uh, you know, so I learned through him and some other classes and then taught others. But a lot of trackers, especially new ones, they want to be, especially with reality TV, they want to be the guy on the horse that comes up and, you know, finds the lost hunter or finds mm-hmm. the bad guy. And it just doesn't work that way in this day and age. When you're the tracker, you're on the radio saying, he's going north by northeast. Mm-hmm. And they send airplanes that way. It's yeah. very rare that, so you're bounding and you're just trying to get a, a direction of travel. And then somebody on ATVs or horses or aircraft, they actually find the guy. Yeah, Trackers right. are very needed, but uh, because we can also we can also tell, okay, they're getting dehydrated. They're mm. they're um, one of the things I pointed on this last book, I think, or I, one of them. Something as small as if you think about, and I'm sure you guys know this, um, as you're walking along with a long gun. If if you're walking along without a long gun. And you turn, you look over your shoulder. Somebody might be behind me. But think about what you do when you have a long gun and you're holding it. When you look over and check your six, 99% of the time, you'll turn around and walk backwards because you want that gun, just subconsciously, you want the barrel of that gun to go where your eyes are going. Mm -hmm. And so you'll turn around and check your back trail walking backwards. So we will be able to say, you know, this guy is, there's a good chance this guy's armed with a long, and a pistol. For some reason, people with a pistol don't do it. They'll walk and they'll look over their shoulder mm. and keep walking. But people with a long gun mm. will turn on. So we just look for little things like that. Oh, little, interesting. So to give the the other people in the you now, obviously in the books, you try to make it so it's you know bad guy against good guy, and sure. the bad guy's extra bad, and more <laughs> of the mono a mono thing. Right, right. Yeah, it's great work. Great fun. Oh man, the tracking is so fascinating to me, and I wish I had been able to do in the military or or out uh, the uh, uh, David Scott Donald and Tactical Tracking Operations School. Mm-hmm. I think somebody else is running it now. I can't I can't remember the last time I looked looked into it, but I wish I had been able to do that. They had a law enforcement military course. They're always like at mm-hmm. Fort Lewis or somewhere uh, doing that. And I, I remember I put a proposal before September 11th to try to go to one when I was at SEAL Team Five. Um, that didn't that didn't work. Didn't get approved. But uh, that stuff actually became very applicable uh, after September 11th, especially oh, yeah. that psychological side you're talking about. And mm-hmm. when you look for where IEDs are and all the rest of it, like there, there are definitely uh, parts of that that are quite applicable, both in Iraq and Afghanistan. But uh, for the tactical tracking stuff is interesting. And I went down, I did do a tracking course with the Border Patrol, with uh, BORTAC. Oh, they're fantastic. So, oh, yeah. BORTAC is yeah. fantastic. So they're like tactical they know you know, special stuff. operations guys. And uh, yep. so I did do a course with them. And that was fascinating because, I mean, you're on there and you're seeing all the, you know, adaptation. So, you know, they're figuring mm-hmm. out what uh, people coming across the border are doing. And then you know, they figure out that they, uh, that the border patrol has figured out that and they have to adapt. So it's this constant game mm-hmm. of adaptation, just like, like warfare, obviously. But, uh, yeah, but I can absolutely. imagine just alone, if you're by yourself and you're out there mm-hmm. and you're tracking and you're tracking and then you look up and then you're staring into an AK or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like that's what well, we're talking about, tactical tracking, uh, having that team those flankers oh, out there absolutely. having that aircraft, having that drone, whatever else. So you don't pick your head up because you're like, okay, getting closer, getting closer. Cause you don't know when that guy's turned around and decided to, to wait in ambush yeah, or just veered exactly. off a little bit to flank you. And there's, there's a lot more to it than just chasing somebody who's going a certain direction because they can turn around and, and turn the tables or they can circle back or they can just flank. And mm-hmm. there's a whole, whole yeah. lot to it. But that course was, was amazing doing it with those guys. And I, 
I certainly don't envy them what they're what they're dealing oh, with on no, the border. No, that's a, that's a tough. And the the thing about border patrol is they're getting to use this every day. Yeah. And and as you said, oftentimes just one or two people out there by themselves, and yeah. they they definitely learn to be very good trackers. Mm-hmm. Um, and just you know, I mean, every my my son who's a he's a, a member of it's essentially a full time SWAT fugitive team now, but on patrol, if you think about it, whether it's combat or patrol or whatever, you're using tracking skills. Something as simple as going up and checking the hood of a vehicle to see if it's cool or not. Right. It, a crime scene search is a tracking skill. So oh, yeah. something like if you were to go up on a, a hide or somewhere where you're tracking whatever high value target or whatever, and you see, for instance, in the sand, the imprint where somebody's been laying down and both their elbows are together, Okay, they're watching you. If one elbow is in front of another, they're probably watching you through the scope mm. of a long gun, right? Little tiny things like that that Amazing. you try to put the story together. And that's, you know, even in tracking in snow, you would think, oh, that's easy. You're just going footstep to footstep. Well, yeah, except if you know that their urine starts to turn dark amber, then you know mm. they're not drinking enough and you can get some other psychology. If you mm. know that they, we have a thing, and I can't remember the name of the nerve. I knew it when I was going through school, but there's a nerve that runs up the front of your your shin mm. that when you start to get hypothermic, it starts to, it it doesn't work as well. Uh-huh. And so you start to clown walk. You start to slap your feet. So it's really, you can look at somebody's tracks and tell a great deal about them um, besides just their direction of travel. So yeah. that, that was a fascinating part to me. Oh man, it's yeah, it's so cool. And so, how long did you spend with the marshals, and when did you uh, when did you leave? Uh, I've been retired almost ten years. I can't 10 believe years. it. I, yeah, I spent twenty two years with the marshals. I stayed the last fifteen with in Alaska. I transferred up as a POD, plain old deputy. Um, uh, was a judicial security inspector, focused on, inspector in the marshal service is like a supervisor, except you supervise programs, not people, just uh. basically whenever you need a detail put together protection, then you supervise those people. Okay. The rest of the time, you're just running the program. So witness security inspector, judicial security inspector, um, you know, the, the fugitive ops inspector, mm-hmm. we call that an enforcement inspector, but that's fugitives. Um, and then was a supervisor, operational supervisor for a year and then promoted to the chief. So the Basically, the chief deputy is the, it's the boss that stays on. It's the civil service boss of every district. Mm-hmm. So the marshals come and go. There's 94 judicial districts, 94 marshals, 94 chiefs, and then everybody else. So mm-hmm. I have spent about six years, not quite seven years as the chief here. Wow. And then retired. And um, gosh, like I say, about 10 years ago, I was wow. probably three Jericho Quins in and okay. six Westerns and three Jericho Quins and jeez. Um, so I do want to, yeah, I want to ask you about that. Like when you started to think about writing again or when you, when you, how you figure that uh, into your, into your schedule and how that worked. But uh, what were you carrying at the end there? What were you, what was your, uh, your everyday carry? Did you still have shotguns? Do you have ARs at this point? What do mm-hmm. you, what do you carry in there near the end of your time? Yeah, we had uh, the marshal service specialized units have MP, MP5s. Mm. Um, but we, uh, in our district, for regular deputies, um, we had AR, uh, M4s, um, AR-15s, mm-hmm. um, 
I had an AR-15 that was personally owned. You could still carry your personally owned. Um, carried the Witsec shotgun through my whole career. Because nice. I even as the chief, I was still tracking. Wow. Um, uh, but we, I can't remember what year, but I want to say like 2004 or something like that, we had, we mandatory switched to Glocks. Okay. So everybody had to carry either a Glock uh, 22 or the 23. And it's a 40 caliber. Yeah. Yeah. 40 cal. Yeah. Um, and then now I think they're letting people go to um, nines, but, but it still yeah. has to be a Glock. But for the first 10 years of my career or better, we were, um, you could carry whatever you wanted to as long as it was larger than a 380 and not a Magnum with the okay. exception of the 357 Magnum. Got so it. a lot of people carried 45 ACP. Oh, and it couldn't be single action. I wish I would have carried the. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. But uh, because I grew up among the Texas Rangers, sure. you can't carry all over, carry a 1911, right? There you My go. Ranger mentor always said, you know, God put that little hollow in the small of your back because it fits a 1911. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, so when I, when I retired, I was carrying because I was a desk jockey as the chief. When I was in the field, I would carry a 44. I have a little um, round butt. Okay, 629 called mm. a trail boss mm. that people see when I'm it's in one of those uh, diamond gosh yeah, diamond yeah. D I think okay Alaska yeah Alaska made uh, chest holster mm-hmm. um, but it's a little ported but when I carried it for work I had to carry 44 specials in it okay. ostensibly but I figured <laughs> <laughs> when there's bears out there you know you want a long yeah. gun anyway I mean incidentally up here when I go where there's bears for sure. I carry a 375. I don't even yeah. mess with a shotgun. Yeah. The 375 H&H. There you go. That's my everything gun. Right. But so I carried the, I was carrying a shorter Model 27 Glock. Mm-hmm. So 40 caliber uh, with a Hennings oh. extension on it. So it carried about the same as a, as a model. What is that? The small one, 23. Okay. Um, so Glock, a small, a baby Glock. Cause that there was, yeah. You know, going uh, back to the headquarters all the time and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. And so, as you're in, like, when do you when do you write your first novel? What uh, what year is that? And do you just you write it first, and then how long do you sit on it until you find an agent? Or what was that process like? How did you how did you go yeah, about spent, getting published? I spent like 23 years when my wife. I tell the story all the time, but I, my I told my wife I wanted to be in law enforcement and uh, and uh, a writer, and so that first year of marriage, we didn't they didn't supply us with guns or ballistic vests. So the first year of marriage, my wife bought me a, an American body armor ballistic vest. Wow. I remember the the picture of the armadillo with a bullet bouncing off of it. I, think um, I remember that. Yeah. And they, they were, you, you washed them in the shower. Like they didn't have a protective cover. You just like scrubbed them off every couple of days. Cause mm-hmm. in Texas, they could get pretty ripe and, <laughs> and quite heavy too, with a big metal okay. and have the soft, Right. Plate. Um, so the metal plate that went on the top. So she bought me that. And I think it cost like 400 bucks. It was yeah. expensive. I mean, our rent payment wasn't 400 bucks. Oh, in wow. 1984. But um, she bought me a ballistic vest and a Smith Crone electric typewriter. And oh, so wow. I was writing short stories and essays and really trying to get short fiction published for almost 20 years before I actually got published. And she you know, I didn't watch a lot of TV. So I was 
whenever I was traveling, I was constantly writing and mm. just filling in the time with, I had a pro- college professor tell me one time, he was actually a drama director. He kind of saw my tendency, I think, to waste time talking and jabbing, you know, jabbering with people. And, and he took me aside and he said, you know, Mark, you have a lot of potential, but you will never reach that potential if you don't figure out how to use those 15 minute segments that mm-hmm. other everybody else is wasting. Oh, wow. So I just, if we were waiting, if we we're deadheading back on a plane, you know, with no prisoners, I'd write in my story. If we were sitting in an airport waiting to catch a plane, I'd write in a story. So I constantly had a book with me. And I remember coming home and we had, uh, I, I'd sold a short story. I can't remember to who Saturday evening post or, or somebody. And, um, not even that first. Cause I think I, but my wife um, met me at the door with a, and, and this is years of just rejection letters and, you know, gnashing of teeth and weeping because I, you know, I'm wasting my time um, and spending time away from family. As you know, yeah. you've got these family commitments, but if you're going to write something and you have, and, and these were all self-imposed deadlines. Right. And I remember she met me at the door with a rolled up magazine and she, you know, told me I'd gotten published and she swatted me on the butt. And then there's like 700 bucks, which not downplaying 700 bucks, yeah. but not quit your job kind of money. <laughs> swatted me on the butt and said, go write us a new couch. This is working out just fine. Go, oh, you know, go great. write us a fridge. So we ended up writing, <laughs> writing Westerns. Okay. And I pitched Westerns, what I actually pitched and got picked up on. Uh-huh. And then trans you know kind of went from that long story but i went from westerns to not getting published for two books had six books under my belt and then nobody wanted the other ones and they i had a really really nice page and a half rejection letter from one of the big seven at the time big six Mm. um very nice effusive compliments on my writing but it's not very commercial and then at the end he said with your job, you need to think about over the top. You need to think about Jason Bourne. You think about, mm. you know, I, I'm sure he didn't, he didn't know you yet, but if he would have known you, he would have said, mm. right. Like Jack, right. Something like <laughs> Jack Carr. Right. So, you know, something that's terrorism and world, um, this is post post nine 11, you know, world domination make you make it bigger. And, uh, and then he actually finished off the, the letter with, uh, two sentences that kind of changed the trajectory of my writing career. He said, and anyway, who cares about Alaska and who cares about a bunch of Alaska native kids? Those are not good protagonists. And boy, it made me angry. Oh, it made me so angry. This was pre 20 reality shows in Alaska and exactly. Yeah. Sarah Palin pre all of that. So I went back to the drawing board and wrote this super over the top. What I thought was going to be like a Matt Helm, you know, Jericho Quinn is a, he speaks multiple languages. He's an Air Force OSI agent, which is what my oldest son was at the time. Actually, he was in the academy at the time going into OSI. So I didn't even know much about what OSI did, yeah. except just what little I'd worked with him. Um, so I just made my main character this motorcycle because I you know, yeah. had a GS adventure at the time yeah. or GS at the time and just made this over-the-top, super good boxer, Air Force Academy, OSI guy with a big gunnery sergeant partner and this voluptuous Cuban Russian working OG, you know, they're all OGAs fighting bad guys thinking this will be a one-off and I can go back to, you know, the real writing. Uh And 
we've done eight and um, <laughs> two novellas and was able to retire. And wow. th- that's the Jericho. And actually the Jericho's Jericho Quinn series is what Mark Graney read in order to recommend me to Tom Colgan for uh-huh. the Clancy's. So okay. they've been Jericho Quinn has been very, very good to me. Hey, so. I love that. So for the ones before that, then did you have an agent or how did, or were you submitting yourself to the, how, how did that work? No, I, I pitched at a conference and this is what I tell people all the time, unless they have a, really, unless they have a background, you know, you've got to have that personality. And so pitching at a conference allowed me to go, um, sit down and kind of, and again, I mentioned I wear a hat all the time. And so I tipped my hat to the lady. She was in her late fifties and smiled at her, told my story. And she asked for three chapters and then called me and said, uh, Actually, she called my when my the same day my father-in-law was dying. So my wife called me and said, "My dad's dying. We need to go to Calgary." And oh, and Anne called and they want to publish her book. And so I'm like, oh, oh, you know, my geez. life's dream, but my right. favorite guy in the world is is passing away. And so we flew to Calgary, got to see my my father-in-law was a World War II vet, British officer. He was 50 when my wife was born. So. Mm. Um, super nice guy. So we got to say goodbye to him, called the, called the editor. She said, well, I can't publish yours right now. Can't get it in, can't get it in the list, maybe in a year and a half, but could you pull my fat out of the fire and help me finish a book for another established writer? And I said, mm. absolutely. Whatever, you know? So wow. I, I agreed to finish this book. She FedExed me some some of the previous ones in the series, these were Westerns by an established writer Wow! and uh, read up on those and said, all right, I'm ready to go. And I called and I said, Hey, I need to speak to so-and-so. And the receptionist at the publisher said, she doesn't work here anymore. Oh, and I said, I, well, I, I'm supposed to be ghosting. I'm supposed to be, supposed to be doing this. And they said, sorry, we, oh. we don't know. That's between you and her. Oh, and so wow. I was orphaned. And then again, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, um, and then I got an email from an agent named Robin Rue with Writer's House. She introduced herself and said, and gave me your pages. I like the way you write. I would like to represent you. Mm. And Robin's been my agent since then. No kidding. Man. Yeah. Fantastic. That's incredible. She's a great lady. Great agent. Yeah. Wow. That's so, and so that first writer's conference then, was it like a thriller fest or voucher con? Did no, you do the one? It was, where- it was a, Western Writers of America oh, wow, in great. Helena, Montana. Wow. And so they did a similar thing where you had multiple agents yep. in there that you kind of could go and talk to for five minutes at a time type of a thing? Yep, exactly. Wow. And I practiced. And I mean, I, was, I told you I met my wife in drama. So I <laughs> and I, I may or may not. Now, when you're, when you're a deputy marshal, you carry all the time anyway. So I may or may not have let my jacket swing open a little bit as I sat down to <laughs> my badge and gun showed. That, there you go. Um, you know, just I practiced that pitch and as if I was, I looked at it like an op. And I think, yeah. and I tell, and I, I've noticed, I think you do that too. In fact, I think we might have even talked about this at, at uh, BoucherCon. You have to look at it like an op. If you're going to pitch to somebody, there's so much online about that person. Make sure you know what they like, what they don't like, and, mm. and not in a creepy way. Right. Just to, to get to <laughs> don't take it too them. far. Yeah. Yeah. Don't take it too far. Don't 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 have pictures yeah, on yeah, your yeah, wall yeah. and red line and all that. <laughs> exactly. But at least, but at least know if if uh 
it's a good idea to mention your kids yeah. or, you know, or, or uh, if they particularly like Alaska or basically more what to point to right. than, um, than anything else. So this was a lady that uh, had just published a book about the border patrol. Mm. And so we chatted about federal law enforcement and um, yeah, it was, uh, and just a super nice lady. So oh, she's great. passed away now, but um, long time in the industry. And, yeah. and I pitched to her and I think three other people. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, those pitches are, they're just a way for you to, you have the kind of personality, for instance, that is very personable in person, makes you want to be your friend. That doesn't always come across, not from you, but from anyone. It doesn't mm. come across in a query letter. Yeah. And they get hundreds a day. So it's tough. those pitches, those Thriller Fest, yeah. uh, Boucher Con, those are phenomenal for, for this sort of thing. Yep. I recommend that to people all the time as well yeah, that reach too. out. I say, me Hey, too. you just go. I, I know so many people that have, have sat down across from an, an agent and had that, that connection, whatever that mm -hmm. is, but they had to go to Thriller, Thriller Fest a few times, BoucherCon a few times. They had to go to more, just anything mm -hmm. like that where you can sit down. And volunteer. You have yeah. to, you gotta, you gotta put that time in. And, uh, and it's worked out for, for a lot of people that we, that we know. Um, oh, Simon, Simon. Yeah, Jure exactly. Yep. Picked up. Uh, I met, I've met you through Thriller Fest or through BoucherCon. I met Mark Graney through BoucherCon. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a uh, it's uh, good stuff. And so, is that how Mark uh, initially found you? Was was at a conference or became aware of you? Because he he did a, a number of the Tom Clancy novels, he and then seven. it was time yeah. for him to 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 <laughs> to move on. It's a lot of that's a lot of work, uh, as you it's know. Mine, yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> bandwidth. It really is. I'm finishing one up right now. Wow, and um, it is a lot of bandwidth because I'm a Clancy fan. I've been a Clancy fan forever, and you want to be. Yeah. Um, and and this particular Clancy that I'm working on now is a retro Clancy. Oh, great! Which is kind of that's cool. Absolutely fun. Wow. To write, you know. Berlin in the, in wow. 1985, but, uh, because that's when I was in law enforcement, that's when I, nice. you know, met a Stasi officer. That's mm. what, you know, that's, you know, that's the kind of thing that I remember. Um, you know, the revolvers and no cell phone days. Right. They, oh, that's, 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 that's great. I can't wait for that one. Hardwired <laughs> into your phone, in your car kind of a thing. That's going to be um, great. Is this your sixth one? Yeah. Which, what number this is this? Is six. Six. Yeah. Okay. This is number six. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's, I had Mark and I met at Long Beach, at BoucherCon in Long Beach, just in passing, you know, hey, yeah. how you doing? I was writing the, the Jerichos and he's just a super nice guy. And so we got to know one another over the course of maybe three other BoucherCons. And um, then you know how hard it is to get, not, not hard to get, but you know how busy you are. And I know you get, uh, <laughs> asked to read people's stuff to because we all get hey could you blurb could you give me a cover quote could you you know and, and i'm the kind of writer that likes to read what i mm -hmm. quote right and i know you are too and and so when mark offered to um to blurb my book he goes what are you working on he goes you want me to give you a cover quote for it it's like Geez, Louise. Wow. Yes, I do. That's, that's awesome. That's great. Because you're Mark Graney. And, that, you know, I love the Gray Man series. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I, as an aside here, I would say that, so I told you my son's on SWAT when you're never a prophet in your own country, right? So if I go and I hang out with the SWAT guys, they're like, they're not like, 
oh, you write the Clancy's? They're like, oh, you know Jack Carr? Oh, you know Mark Graney? Um, that's the that's that's the respect that's that I funny. get, right? Because they know me. But um, but so Mark just hit me up and said, "What are you working on now? Send me a, a you know the send me an e file of it." And so I sent the manuscript to him. Had no idea he was putting it forward. Wow, had no idea at all. And he sent it up the chain to to Tom Colgan, and I guess they couldn't find anybody else, so they settled <laughs> on me and. Robin, uh, I hate to keep referring to my social media because I'm not very good at social media, but if you scroll back far enough, there's a picture of me laying prostrate on the beach in Florida, having just heard from Robin that, wow, that Mark Grant had recommended me. So, wow, yeah, it was a very surprising turn of events, but it's been wonderful. Tom's terrific oh, to work so with. I, I work with Gary Goldstein at Kensington and Tom Colgan at uh, Putnam slash Berkeley slash PRH. Nice. What a team. And yeah, Mark's been such a great guy in the Gray Man series. Oh, amazing. It's coming out this summer on Netflix. So looking forward to looking forward yeah, to seeing that. All, you guys are both, you guys are both be on the, on the screen. That's going to be yeah, pretty wild. Real wild. What's great about That's it is right. I, I talked to, to Mark about this. I think they complement one another because uh, the Terminal List is an eight-part series on Amazon. His is a movie on on Netflix. Um, and I think mm -hmm. they complement. Like someone sees Gray Man is going to be like, oh, that's amazing. I want to go. What's oh, where's, yeah. where's something more similar to that? And then they'll go to, to Terminal List. Exactly. And then once someone goes through the eight-part series of Terminal List, they'll say, oh, it's something else. What is it? Oh, over here on Netflix, there's the Gray Man. So I think yeah. that they uh, they complement one another nicely, which is which is so cool because Mark's been so so kind to me over the uh, over the years. But how is it working on? Are you working on these? at the same time that you're doing a Clancy or are you putting the Clancy to bed, then working on this solely focused on this and then this is done switching gears to the next Clancy. How do you manage doing two huge projects like this? So they overlap, but they don't overlap in that. I don't, I'm not writing the bones of one book at yeah. the same time, you know, morning do one. So <laughs> you know how that is. You're no. when you're editing one. Yep. You're writing the other yes. one, but I, but I, I stop. So when I'm editing, like I just have a couple of months of work done on the Clancy. Mm -hmm. Then I, I had actually set the next one after cold snap is called breakneck. Nice. And I set, I set a breakneck aside. I mean, I set yeah, I set the Clancy aside, went back. I have a tendency to write 90% of the book okay. and get to the, basically the climax. Yeah. And then put it away. And then I start the other one. And then when I come back, then that's sort of coalesced in yeah. my mind. And then I do another wash over the whole book, fix the stuff that, oh, you know, so-and-so had, um, she needed to be from here because of this. And mm -hmm. so I fix that as I'm working my way through. So I've, I built up a good head of steam by the time I get to the climax. And um, so I do it. I sort of got it in a bit, skip back and forth, but I generally go back and forth between the, eventually I'll get back to a, another Jericho, but right now the, Jer the Clancy's require so, because I was not in the military and anybody that reads my Clancy see that I rely very heavily on people that I know that are in the military, <laughs> but I, my Clancy's are generally espionage mm. slash, you know, that kind of, of CQB, running the rabbit kind of a thing mm -hmm. where there's a lot of um, gunplay slash, you know, when espionage goes bad, there's gunplay mm -hmm. and, and that's what these are, these are like. So 
but still a lot more research than uh, I would normally do. Where the cutters, that's been my life for the last 20, yeah. 30 years. Right. And so I'm, I'm, I can generally sit down and write those and then say, you know what, I need to run up to Utkiagvik, which is Barrow, mm. what they call Barrow now, or run down to Prince of Wales Island mm. uh, down by Kitchkan, mm-hmm. where I've been to many times, but I want to go back and get the feel for it. Yeah. So, um, but I don't need to do the very intense research that I had to do, even for the Jerichos to, to get the, the um, I mean, I get the dynamics of, I get the guns, I get the fighting, that, that stuff I know. I mean, I write about the portions that I know. I don't know about crew serve weapons and things like that, but, um, but I don't necessarily know the geography. And so mm-hmm. going to Japan, going to Argentina, as you mentioned, you know, going to Israel or something mm-hmm. like that. I, it's if I can now during right. COVID, I use a lot of yeah. Google Earth sure. and YouTube, mm-hmm. and a lot of times I'll look up something like what does um, Bolivia smell like, mm-hmm. and you'll get fascinating blogs yeah. of people that have been there, exactly. and you can sort of mine that stuff yep. without if you're not able to go there. So exactly, blogs are a, a great resource uh, yeah. <laughs> for sure uh, to yeah. use. But uh, and are you still are you still riding the the motorcycle? You still have the the 1200 GS? You know, I sold that one, but I'll get another one. Nice. I, you know, it's sort of I've been so busy that uh, I I generally keep one down in. Uh, Texas and then ride up in the spring as things thaw. You ride, ride all down. the way up to Alaska every spring? Not every spring, but say I've done it seven times. Seven so, times. That's amazing. That's like yeah. people's once in a lifetime ride. And you've yeah, done it seven my times. Son, my, my son and I, uh, my, that one that's in the youngest son, he did it on a, um, a couple of years ago, we did it together and he did it on a Triumph Scrambler. Wow. And I did it on my GS Adventure and he no was like, way. this poor dude. And I would be ahead of him and my bike had cruise and heated oh, yeah. grips and all that. <laughs> i would like put my hands behind my uh-huh. head and and we had um we had the communication devices in our helmets and you know he was like because he's like <laughs> hunkered down wow you know, his duffel bags pushed him all right. the way up onto the oh, so yeah it was a great adventure they yeah. have a thing up here called the uh, dust to dawson i see you ride um they have a thing called dust to dawson where you can ride from anywhere in the country but a lot of people ride up to Dawson City okay. and have a big motorcycle rally. Oh, that sounds over incredible! In, in uh, Canada, yeah, it's pretty cool. Oh, my friend, actually, Mike Stoner is actually on his way. He's on his way here right now to to work on some bikes here in the garage. Um, but uh, he's a photographer. He took my new author photo. Um, amazing guy. Mm-hmm. He he photographed the Reagans. Um, been all over the world, heli skiing and doing these amazing adventures. Oh, yeah. But he takes a lot of pictures for motorcycle magazines and things like that. And he did a gr- amazing trip. Was it last summer? Or the summer before, up to Alaska which he's done many times, but, uh, but testing out some new, the new BMW, whatever the year that was, you know, the 1200 GS up there and just had an incredible trip. And yeah, he's, he's, he's oh, amazing. I like oh, riding yeah. with that. It's, with someone that knows, really knows what they're doing. It's, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that that's Absolutely. beneficial. Um, but, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I took some classes from, uh, um, Rawhide Adventures, um, yeah. H-Y-D-E, um, those guys, they're in Colorado. Yeah. I took the Colorado classes. They're in California. They go down and they do a big ride um, in South America. They do overseas. Um, they do they do the Dakar. Mm. When it was in South America, they would do kind of a ride along. Yeah. You know, going into base camp and then riding along. That's cool. Incredible, incredible school. They're just, they know what they're doing. They, they put you through the paces where you wouldn't think yep. you could do something with uh-huh. 800 pound 900 pound motorcycle because that GS adventure. Oh, it's a big bike. That's a, 
that's like a nine gallon tank. Yeah. That's a lot of weight up high, and, mm-hmm. but they, they're maestros on it. I've never been that good, but it's, uh, Oh yeah. On my list, actually on my, <laughs> one of my strategic plans, I have that on there, uh, and get some content around it, of course, as well these days, you know, Oh yeah, but, yeah uh, exactly. that's fun. But, uh, yeah, I got the urban nine, the 40th anniversary edition, the what, urban nine G, what do they call it? Uh, but, uh, man, I love that thing. I put it, I, I, I uh, added a few things to it to kind of make it like a scrambler, even mm-hmm. though it's a, you know, 1200, oh, yeah. but, uh, so that's a fun bike to Is that ride. The RT, the yeah, R9T. Exactly. R9T. R9T. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool looking Right. <laughs> I've been trying to figure out how to put that in a, yeah. <laughs> in a, uh, in a book yeah. that R9 T is my son and I was sending little Instagram pictures to each other of bike porn yep. and horses, yep. and, you know, but that R9 T is an awesome bike. Yeah, no, it's so fun to ride. Uh, I'm going to do a couple things because of supply chain issues. I need to fit, to work on the tail. That's still stock, but I need to work mm-hmm. on that, but then it'll be, it'll be good to go. But the, uh, the 1200 such a motorcycle. <laughs> you know, you always have to you gotta yeah, personalize it. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> but that uh, that 1200 uh, GS adventure is on my is on my list. I, you gotta have the quiver. I mean, you, you have to have the quiver. We have, the, the, the kids are going on a nice uh, motorcycle adventure here while I'm on book tour, unfortunately. But uh-huh. uh, my wife's taking them down, and they'll be down in Moab. Um, and uh, oh, that's cool. Down there, so yeah, it's it. We know the. Great. I don't know where you get your stuff, but Harrison Eurosport. Yeah, that's it. That's where, where I got it. That's where I bought my bike. No way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, Harrison. they were great to me. They're, yeah. They're awesome people. Yep. Yeah. Mention, mention. I will Jericho let you. Quinn. Yeah. They're awesome people. I will let them know. I'll probably email them right after this. I might end up with a 1200 GS by the end of the week. Uh, oh yeah. No, they're, they're awesome. Folks. That's where, that's where my son bought his, uh, triumph. Yeah. Well. They have that whole thing, um, that whole setup down there. Yeah, it's great. BMW, yeah, you got the triumph great. stuff. I, it's all right there. I had a, uh, I had a wreck going oh, in no. through the Yukon I had an oh. RV pull out in front of me oh. and on a, my earlier, it wasn't an adventure. It was a GS ended up. Um, and I'm a, all the gear all the time kind of guy, especially on these long yeah. rides. But I remember it was a low side. So the bike was ahead of me, you know, and, and, uh, bouncing along ahead of me. And I was only going maybe not quite 30 miles an hour, but that's, a, no. that's pretty fast to be yeah. bouncing on your back down the highway. I want to bounce at any speed. And, no, exactly. But I remember thinking, yeah, this is going to be good in a Jericho book. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> um, flipped through the air, landed oh on my, my face. And the the old, the poor old guy that pulled out in front of me. I mean, we made eye contact. Oh, we were wow. like That's tough. looking at each other. <sighs> and I thought, okay, he sees me. I'm going to go ahead and go. Yeah. And then he just, but he was not making eye contact with me. He was zoned out. Oh. But he he came and it was right at a little little um, rest area yeah, place. Right, that, right. You know, with porta potties yeah. and right after that big bridge coming out of Tetlin, I think. And, um, he pulled out in front of me. I flipped, I skidded. Ugh. And then he came up and he looked over the side where I was laying face down in the ditch. My bike was tires still spinning. Uh. One of my Turatec bags had popped mm-hmm. completely off. And, uh, he goes, I, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, I, I got to go to the bathroom. And I said, well, I took care of that about 30 seconds ago myself. Oh, man. But, so I ended up, I ended up gorilla taping the mirrors back on my bike, taking my uh, tire irons and mm-hmm. hammering out the, the aluminum. Those Turatec bags are wow. boxes are awesome. And uh, banged those back out and uh, putting everything back together. And I, I like guy lined the one mirror I could oh, get back on guy lined it on so that I had a mirror and rode from the Yukon 
all the way to Harrison Eurosports and they fixed my fixed my bike. No way. It was amazing. It was totaled. I think it was like $15 away. He goes, he goes, if you don't paint this, we won't total it. I can I can fix it for you. Wow. There, that's how I got to know them and they were awesome. No awesome people. way. Now I ended up buying the buying the I think the guy's name is Andy. Um that uh, in the department there. Troy is the guy that I work with in sales. Okay. I'm going to go see if um, those guys are still are, are, are there for sure. Yeah. Oh man, that is awesome. Yeah. My wife and I went to Sturgis years ago when I was still in the military. Ooh. I actually worked, worked it into uh, my first novel. Um, yeah. But uh, I could, I was, yeah, I was, I <laughs> we didn't ride there. So we cheated. We <laughs> flew. And then uh, a friend had a bunch of bikes out there. Um, and uh, and so I rode a, a road king around uh, the whole time. And I loved mm-hmm. that bike. That was so great. But I had a fat oh, yeah. boy at the time in, in California and uh, at, uh, in Coronado. And I love that fat boy. I wish I still had it. So I'm probably going to have to get another one of those soon just because I just, oh, I know what you I mean. just love it. That it's was just, a nice yeah. bike. That, well, that's the, I don't know, that's the quintessential Harley to me is that I fat so. boy. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was so absolutely. great. And I tricked out, of course, and, you know, the whole thing. It was, I love that mm-hmm. thing. I can't believe I got rid of that thing. But uh, <laughs> and there's another bike. There's these guys in Alaska that make some bikes. It's called the Alaskan. What, what's the name of that company? Uh, they make like, I know a, what you're talking about. I haven't seen one. Yeah. yeah I, I can't remember the exact name of the company, but the bike's called the Alaskan. So I think I'm going to grab one of those too, just cause it's so unique. And, uh, yeah. and I just want to try it out. So I think, yeah, I think. Oh that's yeah. All, that's all well, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the mathematical formula for bikes is X plus one with X being the number you have. Right. So. And, and then I can put it in my excuses always. Well, I'll write it into a novel. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I have and to do this Phil, research. My Phil, wife's like, don't Philip we have Roth five other says, ones yeah, in the garage right now? What's wrong with one exactly, of those? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Philip Ross says nothing bad ever happens to a writer. It's all material. Right. Oh, so you just, everything you do is. That's it. That is it. Research, it's all man. research. And writing. Mm-hmm. That is the best when you're in that helmet, you have that time in your head where you don't have, because I, I don't hook my phone nope. up to my Bluetooth. No way. I want to be, yep. I just want to be writing. Exactly. And, um, man, you can, it's just such a good, especially in the kind of life you've led or to a lesser extent what I've led where you, you are just constantly on. Yep. Um, man, it's sure nice to. Just, just be, to me, it reminds me riding a motorcycle, especially, um, well, anywhere, because you can always die. <laughs> it reminds me of, and not to be maudlin about it, but it reminds me of my first year on patrol where you're kind of a bit paranoid, yeah. like everything's, oh, yeah. you know, trying to kill you. Yep. And truly, if you're not riding with that kind yep. of a mentality, you're not defensive enough. Yep. You know, you have to ride like everybody's on crack and their cell phone at the same time yep. putting on their makeup and trying Cause to Cause that's like you. half the people so, on the road anyway, in some <laughs> exactly. places. So I know you, you look over and see, and there's no hand on the wheel. They got a cup of Starbucks oh, and they're putting on whatever yeah, yeah. or reading their phone. And, oh yeah. Yeah. No, I don't connect yeah. mine either. And I, I found that especially now there's so many inputs and so many emails coming in and so many texts and so many phone calls. And it's just more and more of those are, are stacking up, which I feel very fortunate about, but, uh, you know, sometimes in my car, you know, I have, I have the phone there, whatever, and it's, you can still hear the buzz or, or whatever, not on the bike. And I don't even, no, I don't even, no, you know, no. want one of those Good. holders there. That, yeah. No chance. I put it on I'm airplane mode. Your, your uncle, yeah. your uncle Mark is telling you not to do that. So that's good. It's good advice. Yeah. We need, we need more jack cars. So don't be, <laughs> Don't be augering in on the oh, bike. So no, great. I don't even want to feel it. I don't even want to just put it on silent and have it in my pocket and feel the buzz no. and be distracted by no. that. I don't want it there doing my no, navigation. You, I want none of that on the bike at all. I want, yep, and it's so exactly. freeing. 
It's so freeing. Oh, yeah. Like I'll just take the bike and even just do a, a little ride right around here just to not, oh, yeah. to not even, I don't even need to clear my head, but just to take a breath and just enjoy and not mm-hmm. have these inputs. And I find the bike is like feeling. really nice. Yeah. You know, I just got, actually, I just got an FJ40 uh, uh, out there from 1978, original engine and obviously it's stick. So four speed, right. I'm like, rah, rah, and you have to be working. So you can't have right. the phone. Nothing can I distract you in that thing. You can't, I can't even have a cup of coffee because you're working that thing. And with those just four you know, gears there, you're working yeah. it. Uh, yeah, so I, I do like that as well. I mean, it has a top speed of like 40. Uh, so you don't want to go, <laughs> you don't want to go too, too far in it, but, no, uh, but that's absolutely. fun too. But the, but the bike's just absolutely. great because you get that helmet on and you get out there and you're just, you know, checking it and getting ready for that ride. Yeah. And then off you go. And there's something so, so freeing about it. So I, I love doing that. I'm going to do it this afternoon. Actually, I'm going to do it. <laughs> oh, good, 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 good. We do that with, with UTVs and ATVs nice. up, up here just to get away from, there's something very freeing about being outside the signal, yep. you know, just oh, wow. being away from any signal, Oh yeah. being out where you realize you're kind of on, you know, you're on your own. I, I carry a, um, in reach with yep. me. So if I have to talk to somebody, mm-hmm. but, or even a sat phone yeah. sometimes. Sat phone's nice. Enough. Just a, there's a, but, uh, emergency. But the nice thing about a sat phone is they don't call you. You exactly. call them. So exactly. So, uh, <laughs> I don't, uh, that's the way to do it. No, that is definitely, it's, it's definitely a, it. a brain rest because mm-hmm. you don't, uh, I think that's one of the things that's been the best about retirement is I don't necessarily take my phone with me anywhere. Oh, that's I nice. don't, uh, in fact, I had a lot of people, I was helping some reality TV show people up here with some scouting right after I retired, but not every day. Yeah. And they would like kind of yell at me like, well, we couldn't get a hold of you. Was, yeah, you're right. You couldn't. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't do that anymore. I'm out. Yeah doing something else. I'll call you back, leave a message. There you go. And it's a, it's a different mentality. And I like that much better. Oh yeah. No, there's uh there's a lot to that. I mean, I hope we can go for, I know we've talked about it before, but uh, I'd love to get on the bikes together at some point and uh, yeah. maybe take a, take a breath next time I'm in Alaska for a day or two, just to say yeah. hello and uh, zip around a little bit. Yeah, That'd be great. We'll, we'll go, go do something. We'll get out in the woods. Yeah. We need to get you up here. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's definitely a, a unique place, as you know. Oh yeah, I've got my eye on a couple areas up there. That oh, my wife doesn't listen to this. She, I mean, she likes being <laughs> remote, but she likes also to be you know close to a, a couple of things. Uh, so feeling remote, like where we are, we're kind of on the, the outskirts right. here in Park City, um, but mm-hmm. uh, but but still being able to zip in and get the kids to school and right. do those sorts of things. Oh yeah, but, this beautiful yeah, beautiful area. Not not a bad spot. Yeah, this morning it was elk and mule deer and uh, and turkeys crossing the road when I was driving our little oh, guy yeah. to, to school. So we saw all the mm-hmm. three of those this morning. Um, but oh man, I want to. So right here, we didn't really talk too much about, about this, That's okay. but this is That's out okay. now, uh, cold right. snap and you're working on the next one right now. And I mean, look at that cover. I mean, it looks like all the things we were just talking about. Yeah, they do. They do a good job. Kensington does a good job with the covers that, uh, you know, the, the interesting thing about that is that set in March, but, but, uh, I got a, I got a friend July. up in Fairbanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we say we got two seasons up here, winter and August, um, <laughs> But the, my friend up in Fairbanks sent uh, put something on social media, like I'm sick of this weather, and and they've got six inches of snow this morning, four inches of snow this morning. So it's um, yeah, a, a cold snap here. In yeah. fact, there's a scene in the book where the, or uh, where Arliss is saying, you know, we, I want to stay up here in the north, but I'm worried about. Aren't you worried about this storm? And 
and the North Slope police officer said, there's always a storm up here. That's not like, so it's not like you have to shoehorn it in. Yep. It's right. constantly some oh, kind yeah. of weather. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, we're recording this is, uh, what is it like May something, but uh, yeah, yesterday, yesterday morning, everything was covered in snow. I'm brushing off the truck yeah. outside and, yeah. and uh, getting no, exactly. that thing warmed up yeah, before, uh, before good our, elevation. Yeah. That's good stuff. Yeah, no, it's great. I love it. I love it. Uh, I love it there. Man, well, thank you so much for doing this. I sincerely, it's, I love spending time with you. And uh, I mean, you're such an inspiration. And I know not just to me, but like yeah. so many people that are out there that are thinking, they're made in law enforcement or whatever it might be. And they're thinking, man, I'd love to write a book one day. And they see what you have done and uh, these series that you have and then writing the Clancy's and carrying on that tradition and just doing an amazing job with everything that you do. Um, and uh, man, I couldn't be more appreciative. And I know uh, so many people feel the same way. So uh, thank you for writing the and thank you you for uh for being an inspiration and man i hope we can link up up there in uh in alaska in short order yeah me too jack thanks so much for doing this you're the you're the inspiration the stuff you're doing for other writers and and uh you've seen a tremendous amount of success that's well deserved and uh appreciate what you're doing to to lift all the boats really do well appreciate that and hopefully i'll see you soon yep i hope so thanks a million awesome take care Navy Federal Credit Union. I've actually been a member since 1996, the year that I joined the Navy. And Navy Federal Credit Union wants to thank the men and women in the U.S. military for their important commitment to our country. For more than 85 years, Navy Federal Credit Union has made it their mission to help people in the military community. Navy Federal Credit Union is open to all branches of the military, veterans, and their families. Navy Federal's employees are veterans and military spouses, so they're part of the community they serve, and they understand their members better than anyone. Members can enjoy an average earning and savings of $352 per year, a savings rate three times the industry average. An average credit card, APR 5% lower than the industry average, award-winning 24-7 stateside member service, over 350 branches worldwide. Show your own support for our troops with hashtag Mission Military Thanks. Learn more about how Navy Federal is celebrating the commitment that connects them to their members at NavyFederal.org slash celebrate. And I also have to read that this is insured by NCUA. Dollar value represents the results of the 2020 Navy Federal Member Give Back Study. Value claim based on Navy Federal's 2020 Member Give Back Study. Credit card value claim based on 2020 Navy Federal as low as APR averages compared to advertised industry APR averages as of December 31st, 2020, published on creditcards.com. Thanks so much. Check out NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the terminal list. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash danger close and use code danger close 20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's coffee. Keep crushing. Today's gear segment is sponsored by Zero 
Foxtrot. Zero Foxtrot provides unique products that reflect the old school vintage military lifestyle. I've actually been following these guys for a while. Love what they're doing. Have a bunch of other shirts and coffee mugs downstairs from from the last few years. Just love it when guys get out and absolutely crush it. Zero Foxtrot is veteran founded and is a proud supporter of our nation's defenders, veterans, and first responders. Actually wearing this shirt. Look at that. Canoe Club USA. What does that mean? I think you're going to have to look it up in your web browser, the Google machine. Canoe Club USA, awesome shirts out there. They have limited edition ones that drop every now and again that are super cool. So definitely go to zerofoxtrot.com. And right now, we have an exclusive code for listeners of Danger Close. Use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Very cool. Remember, you can gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC at checkout for 20% off your order. Just go to zerofoxtrot.com slash JC and remember to use code JC for 20% off at checkout or just click the link in the description. Once again, that offer code is JC. Gear up with Zero Foxtrot and use code JC for 20% off. Awesome. Definitely do that and check out all they have going on. Follow them on the social channels. They have some great things out there. They do some history posts every now and again that are really cool and very well thought out. Definitely check out zerofoxtrot.com for all the stuff. They have Zippo lighters in there. They have these mugs right here. What does that say? Drink coffee, stack bodies, stay zero. Love this. And then this one right here, this is cool. This might be a limited edition one. I'm not sure. Um, But for St. Patrick's Day, lack fear not beer. Look at that. Boom. Love it. Awesome. So that's what they look like right there. Zero Foxtrot. Get a little of that action right there. That's a sticker. But uh, check out their t-shirts, mugs right here. Whiskey glasses. These are some of my favorites right there. Look at that. Oh yeah. Solid. So check them out for sure. Zerofoxtrot.com slash JC for 20% off. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Clothes Podcast. So I just got this Dark Angel Medical Kit right here. This is their new one. It's called the Spear. And this thing is sweet. I mean, this package right here, it's slim compact and you got a tourniquet in here. I want to read a little something about them and about this kit in particular. But uh, I think I just had uh, Mark Cameron on. So I think that this is going on my uh, my bike, on my motorcycle. It's just such a real, such a slim package and a... Uh, seems like it is so well thought out. But uh, go to darkangelmedical.com. You've heard me talk about their kits before. Uh, and I have I have quite a few. Uh, I've done talked about them in uh, past gear segments, have a platform box that I love. Uh, and uh, IFAC have a bunch of really small kits that they make. Uh, I've got a bunch of them. But this one is, I don't know, this one's feeling really good. I'm going to buy a few more of these and stash them around, but, uh, go to darkangelmedical.com, uh, IFAX vehicle kits, first aid kits, everyday carry, and most importantly training. Um, so go check them out, sign up for their newsletter, uh, veteran owned and operated company. Just love what they have going on. And I want to read a little something here from the owner here, Carrie Davis, founder of dark angel medical, uh, such an awesome guy. And, uh, right here, this is the spear. It's the uh, Dark Angel Medical Special Purpose Emergency Aid Rig. Uh, It's the newest addition to their line, and uh, it's low profile, constructed right here, this stuff right here, which is a really cool material, uh, constructed by First Spear, 
It's called squadron laminate material for those that uh, that are familiar with that. Uh, super low profile, snag proof as they could possibly make it. Uh, this thing is awesome. I'll read about a little bit what's in here. Right here, look at that little tourniquet garage. But I should probably read this so I don't mess it up. Click the buckle and grab the red pull handle. So right there. And it's deployed. Pull the center tab and the whole kit opens up easily to display the best trauma kit components available and ready to go. The tourniquet holder there is designed for the CAT Gen 7 or the Soft T Gen 5. And this right here, yeah, tourniquet garage. I like that. So it's not sitting out and exposed. So that's awesome right there. A uh, whole bunch of great stuff in here. Uh, one pair of chest seals, uh, one compression bandage, one uh, roll standard compressed gauze, gloves, blanket, tourniquet. Uh, this thing is awesome. Uh, yeah, quick clot breeding control dressing uh, is in here. So well thought out, Dark Angel Medical. Check them out, darkangelmedical.com. And once again, I said I have I, like most of the family of all their all their stuff and couldn't can't say enough good things uh, about them or the the company. Incredible. So darkangelmedical.com. Man, Carrie, thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. And uh, yeah, time for me to go order a few more. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, Nine Cloud Original, presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Mark Cameron, go to markcameronbooks.com. You can link to his social channels from there. And that is M-A-R-C-C-A-M-E-R-O-N, books.com. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Go to officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there, jackcarusa.com is the merch. And my latest novel, In the Blood, is out now in hardcover ebook and audiobook wherever books are sold. If you enjoyed our conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And until the next time, take care out there. Be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or <laughs> right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.